Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Becoming Educated and it's a very exciting one. Today is the 50th episode of Becoming Educated. So before we get into today's episode, can I just say a massive thank you to you, the listeners, for rating, reviewing and listening each and every week. It really is outstanding and I'm very humbled that you choose to listen to Becoming Educated. I'm really excited for the next 50 episodes and I really do hope that you continue listening to Becoming Educated. This week, I am joined by James Mannion for this 50th episode. James worked as a science teacher for 12 years. He has an MA in person-centred education from the University of Sussex and a PhD in learning to learn from the University of Cambridge. James's doctoral thesis is an eight-year evaluation of the learning skills curriculum. The focus of Fear is the Mind Killer, an outstanding book that he co-authored with Kate McAllister. And we unpick Fear is the Mind Killer and the Save You study in today's episode. James works as a bespoke programmes leader at the Centre of Educational Leadership in the UCL Institute of Education and is also an associate of Odyssey Cambridge and a founding fellow of the Chartered College of Teaching. As mentioned, this episode of the podcast focuses on Fear is the Mind Killer and the book focuses on the work that James and colleagues did at Seaview with their learning skills curriculum. James unpacks what a learning skills curriculum is and how he got, got, got involved. He also explains to me why learning to learn is educational marmite. He also puts learning to learn on trial with prosecution and rebuttals for and against learning to learn. He then dives deep into what exactly is the learning skills curriculum and why we should rethink learning to learn as a complex intervention. James talks us through the learning skills theory of action and and explains what was involved daily, weekly and monthly and also provides the outstanding evidence for the learning skills curriculum and how much they actually closed the attainment gap between the most deprived and the most advantaged. James also tells us why the CVU study advances the field of of learning to learn and goes into great detail about the learning skills curriculum throughout the podcast. I got a lot out of this. I really hope that you do. So get your notepad ready, get your dog lead ready for walking the dog or get your car keys ready for your commute. And let's dive into this episode of Becoming Educated. Thank you so much for listening. Hi James, uh, thanks so much for coming on the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you? I'm really well, Darren. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Certainly, I'm looking forward to it. As I said off air, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book and I think listeners will, will get a lot, lot from this. So before we, we get into the, the nitty gritty, um, could you share a little bit about, about you and, and your career in education to date, please? Yes, yes, sure. I'll try and keep it brief. So I uh, I came into teaching fairly late. I was sort of about 30. 
And I came into it, um, I remember sort of coming into it thinking that I wanted to change the system, <laughs> as it were, which was perhaps a little bit arrogant as somebody who'd never even stepped foot in a classroom since I was a kid myself. Um, but I remember doing that and I, like, I almost wasn't, didn't become a teacher. I almost sort of just kept, became an education academic. I wanted to study it and to research it and to sort of understand it and to think about how we might do things differently. Um, and I really believe that, that, you know, if we change the education system, if we had a very different education system, we would see a very different world. And, if, and I think that we'd see the world, especially, my goodness, at this point in time, in the start of January 2021, it's a troubled place, you know, and, and I look at some of, the, some of the stuff that's happening and I think, man, if we did education differently, we, we might very well see a different world. And so I haven't really changed my opinion on that. I still want to change the system, man, and all that stuff. So I became a science teacher and, um, and got the research bug very early on. So I did a, I, I did a master's, a, a research-based master's in um, person-centered education. So it was quite, some people saw it, would see that as quite a sort of a tree-huggy master's, you know, person-centered. But I really, it was based on the, so the writing of Carl Rogers, the, the founder of person-centered psychotherapy who's a fascinating, fascinating person and really influential in my thinking. So, um, and the, the MA was incredible. It was the best professional development I ever had by an absolute mile. It was just like having this shot in the arm and I was like, whoa, it's like the matrix, like I know Kung Fu sort of thing. It's amazing. And so I was like, I want to go to the next level. So I was looking around to do for a topic for a PhD and just purely by coincidence, really, that, that month, that September when I went back was the month that this Learning to Learn curriculum started, which I had applied to become a part of this team. Um, and I know we're going to get into that a lot later on, because that became the focus of the next 10 years of my life, um, where I studied this, this Learning to Learn curriculum that we designed and taught. Um, and I evaluated it over eight years for my PhD. And it was eight years because we followed four cohorts of kids from year seven mm -hmm. through to year 11 one control cohort and three learning to learn cohorts. Um, and that had amazing results. And as you know, we've just written it up into this book, Fear is the Mind Killer. Um, and now I'm sort of working. So, so at some point along the way, I sort of fell into the orbit of the, the Institute of Education, the IOE, part of UCL now. And so I, I worked with them as an associate for a few years, first of all. And now I work there um, permanently, but I'm part-time for two days a week. And it's a really cool place to work. It's, it's a unit within the IOE called the Center for Educational Leadership. So most of the people, there are academics within our center, but I'm, I'm a programs leader. So most of the people who do my role are like ex-school leaders and head teachers and so on. Um, so we're very sort of school facing. So we, we sort of, we straddle the divide really. We take all the stuff that the academics pump out and we try to make it sound uh, human <laughs> and then and then present it uh, with greatest of respect to my academic colleagues of course um, and um, yeah that's what I do now and so I work part-time as a consultant alongside that um, promoting either learning to learn in schools and uh, as we were just talking about before the before the recording that's happening sort of starting to happen all over the planet now which is very exciting um, I also work in practitioner inquiry, so um, like teacher research, which is essentially learning to learn for teachers, you know, teachers taking control of their own professional development and implementation science, which is my latest mm -hmm. um, obsession and the focus of my next book, um, which is really important stuff, I think uh, we've got, we stand to gain huge 
uh, huge leaps and bounds in terms of pupil outcomes and just making schools a whole lot more effective if we can get our heads around how to implement change in such a way that it's effective and sustained over time. And this emerging field, this sort of brand new field of, of implementation science shows the way, I think. So that's what I'm currently um, obsessed with. Yeah, so. Brian, so I look forward to, to reading that when it comes, because I said to you off, I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading um, Theories in the Mind Killer. And we're going to focus this conversation on that. And of course, the learning skills curriculum that that you studied at um, Seaview. So just to start us off with that, the, 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 as you met, we've mentioned, the book that you've worked, worked on for, for so long um, and is based on the work you've done at Seaview with the learning skills curriculum. So could I just start off with what is a, a learning skills curriculum and how did you get involved? Yeah, so, so I'll take your second question first. So I got involved. It was a, quite a mundane story, really. I just got an email from the head teacher of my of my school who said, "Who wants to get involved in designing and teaching this, you know, Year Seven taught course, a learning to learn curriculum?" And I just immediately thought, "Wow, this is an incredible opportunity to do something different." And there was a competitive selection process within the school, which was really important. So the people who were on this, who appointed to this team, there was five of us in total, were all really up for it. And we were all very much inclined. And that's been a problem in the past. Things like this have been given to people who they describe them in the literature as skeptical conscripts. You know, people who just got a bit of time on their timetable, they get backfilled, to use the, the jargon, and they just get kicked up the backside and told, you know, you get in there and teach that. Because it's not, you know, it's not got GCSEs attached. And so they think, oh, this isn't that important. You know, we'll just sort of, you know, staff it in that way. And if you're going to do that, like there's no... There's really no point in doing it so but we were all sort of in, unusually enthusiastic to to get involved with this thing we would go around to each other's houses planning over a bottle of wine and so on and we knew that this was something really special and and we were given this mad opportunity so the head teacher when, we, when you ask what is a learning skills curriculum i mean we we sort of invented our own version of that so this happened in 2010 and around that time i don't know how much of this stuff was happening north of the border but um, in, in England, there was quite a lot of taught learning to learn um, curricula around, and it was often the year seven thing. It's often seen as a thing that, that helps to smooth the transition from primary to secondary. Was, was there much of that stuff up, up your way? Um, I couldn't, I don't really know. I know that um, in a school that I worked in, we did, did that exact same thing, a transition kind of learning to this is this is how your brain works this is how you learn and your brain's a sponge and, and and all this kind of things when they came in but I think you've you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of it's it's uh your year seven's equivalent to our rs1 so I think it's exactly the same same yeah okay I mean there was a lot of that around then you know around about the sort of mid 2000s around to 2010 was probably when learning to learn peaked in terms of the, the extent to which it was being practiced. I recently did a Twitter poll and asked secondary school teachers to what extent, like how many of you were, were taught in a school that, that had a taught learning to learn course? And it was something like 70 or 80% 10 years ago. And then I asked a follow-up question, how many of you now? And it was like 12%. So it's absolutely collapsed in terms of the extent to which it's practiced in schools as things have swung really, really hard from a sort of a very skills focus under the new Labour administration up to, up to 2010, 2011. And as you know, things have swung hard 
in the direction of direct in direct instruction and knowledge rich curricula and retrieval practice and all that traditionalist stuff um, and so it's an interesting time to be published in this book because like 10 years ago this would have like sold like sold like you know hot cakes but now we're sort of flying in the face of of all this traditionalist stuff that's happening um, and so so what is a learning skills curriculum it's a taught so, so it's, it's essentially a way of thinking about like teaching kids how to how to learn how can is it possible to teach kids how to get better at learning stuff and that's a that's a hot question and it's and it's fiercely debated and has been for a long time people really started talking about learning to learn I mean it goes back a really long way but it really took off in the 70s when John Flavel coined the word metacognition and him and Anne Brown and other people started doing some work around this and you know thinking about thinking and people started right from the outset John Flavel realized that this this is not just about like mnemonic memory strategies and getting better at you know remembering stuff he, he was talking about um, that, that this may one day be translated into a vision for education that enables people to take wise and thoughtful life decisions so he, he saw this as somehow a process of of like self-actualization of like becoming more fully yourself through this process of metacognition reflecting on on your own thinking and so on and taking control of your own thinking and behavior um and so it was a, so it, at the school that i was teaching at at sea view we were given five lessons a week with the whole of year seven and we could do with it what we wanted which is just absolutely unheard of you know it was absolutely incredible so we um, we put together what we refer to as a complex intervention. So before I was a teacher, I used to work as a, as a scientist in, in neuroscience and in medicine and healthcare and, and science generally, like this idea of, of complex interventions are really common. Like it's very widely understood idea that if you want to make something happen, you know, this is not a silver bullet situation. Like human beings are complicated biological organisms. And if you want to fix something, you know, go at it from a number of different mechanisms, you know, and then you, lo and behold, you get, you know, so this is commonly, um, you know, referred to in, you know, you can see it in multimodal analgesia, say, so people who get pain relief if they've had some operation, say, um, you know, if you just give them morphine, which is the standard thing, it's got all these horrible side effects. But if you give them a little bit of background morphine, if they, if they want it, but you also give them local anesthetic and you can do preemptive analgesia. So you, you give them pain relief before you've even done any surgery on them. And with all of these different methods combined, you get better pain relief and the, the patient gets out of bed quicker. So it's, there's, there's financial implications for the healthcare system. It's like a win-win-win. You know, there's lower costs, there's less drugs, there's less side effects, it's great. But in education, like a big part of my PhD was looking at the, the, the literature on complex interventions and the extent to which they're used in education compared to medicine. And in medicine, there's like thousands and thousands of, of citations that talk about this as an idea. And in medicine, I could find literally a handful. It was like fewer than 10, the really clear cases of, of somebody implementing a, a, a complex intervention from 40 or 50 years of, of research. And so I think that that's just a bit mad and it still happens to this day that like people have this obsession with silver bullets and it's like, what is the one thing that, that you know, is going to fix this problem? And learning to learn has been, has been, you know, has been guilty of that as well in the past. You know, there was, a time, there was one big project, the Learning How to Learn project, and they conceived of learning to learn as essentially AFL, is assessment for learning. So they, they made it a very, very narrow focus and it didn't really have any impact. And we sort of recognized that, you know, that if you want to teach kids how to how to get better at learning stuff, 
Like, that's a complicated problem, man. Like it's, it's partly metacognitive. Knowledge is really important, but so are emotions, right? The book is called Fear is the Mind Killer. And, and, and fundamentally, a child's relationship to their learning is, is an emotional one. Like, are they happy? Do they feel safe? It's a hugely important thing. Um, and are they looking forward to the future? And, you know, like, so you need to engage with this problem on a, on a number of different levels. So we put together this complex intervention that was, that was aimed at addressing that. So we had like project-based learning in there to help them to develop, you know, um, self-management skills really and project management skills and to manage their time and resources and to learn to self-regulate. There was lots of stuff on metacognition, um, reflecting on learning and thinking about learning. And we taught, you know, um, thinking and reasoning skills as a taught course and oracy. So it was really boiled down to those three big ideas of metacognition, self-regulation and oracy. We, we absolutely threw the kitchen sink at oracy because, and it's not that I think that they're the only three ingredients of a good education. It's just that they're the three missing ingredients, if you like. Like schools, they're already really good at developing written literacy and numeracy and, you know, the knowledge rich curriculum is already sort of there. Metacognition, self-regulation and oracy, I think, are underdeveloped, which is why I think that this curriculum goes some way to providing a more balanced education, you know. It, it certainly is. And, and you mentioned um, about the history of learning to learn and, and you describe it as, as educational marmite. Could you elaborate on that and tell us why, why you would describe learn to learn as, as marmite? Yeah, well, it's that. So it's the famous sort of, you know, you either love it or you hate it sort of thing. There doesn't seem to be much middle ground. So when you look at the literature on learning to learn, like as you may be aware, the, so the Education Endowment Foundation, this, this organization that was set up by the government in 2011, handsomely funded to the tune of like a quarter of a billion pounds or something over, over a 20 year period. Um, you know, one of the first things that they did was to publish this teaching and learning toolkit. Um, which was, you know, it's sort of like a league table for what makes for effective practice. And it's a bit of a problematic idea because they're not comparing like with like, you know, like, so you can't really compile them into a league table. It's a bit of a false thing. But anyway, they did it for better or worse. And, and sitting right at the top of this thing is feedback. And then in second place is metacognition and self-regulation, which they, do, they say is basically learning to learn. Um, and so, you know, according to the EEF, learning to learn is the most effective game in town, right? And there's lots of there's lots of evidence to back that up. You know, that that's that that evidence is based on mainly on meta analyses of of lots of smaller studies that have looked at, at metacognition and regulation and consistently. These, these interventions that focus on these practices have a have a whacking great effect size, um, and so. You know, according to the EF, it's the, the, you know, one of the most effective things we can do. Um, but then there are other people. So I know that the, Tom Bennett is a former uh, guest on, on your podcast and he's very well known to many people. And he wrote a book uh, a number of years ago now called Teacher Proof. Um, it was the chat line was something like why education research doesn't mean what it says or something like that and what you can do about it and he was essentially looking for like you know like what are the fads what are the myths what are the sort of the the half truths that we've been sold a puppy on and so you know brain gym and learning styles everyone was sort of railing against that at the time um and neuro-linguistic programming and so on and uh, i don't know whether it was because he wanted to fill a book or whether he would genuinely believe it but he put learning to learn in that category and he described it as as a snake oil hoax sold by hipsters, whether they know it or not. And, and he's not alone. Um, there are other people, there's like, there's a guy called Dennis Hayes, who's a professor 
um, who's like rails against learning to learn. And there's, you know, there's no shortage of people um, who rail against this stuff. And so it's, there's just this weird, you know, sort of very polarized picture that emerges from the literature where it's like, either this is the most effective game in town or it's like a total hoax. Um, and it didn't seem like there were many people who were sort of in between that, you know, um, and so that's why we talk about it as educational marmite. And essentially that's the, the first sort of third of the book, if you like, is looking at this, like what we refer to as the learning to learn paradox. Like, so what's going on? If, if like, which is it? Is it the most effective game in town or is it a total load of old rubbish? Or is it something that's a lot more complicated than that? And something that's more interesting, more fascinating and more in, in the middle, which is where, you know, things so often end up being, don't they? They certainly do it. And, and that leads us wonderfully on to, to chapter three. And, and I said to you off air that I picked up chapter three and I just kept kept going and, and reading it because it was so such so beautifully written. And it's in that you, you put learning to learn on trial and you look at it from, um, I can't remember the prosecution and I can't remember how, how it was worded, but um, could you then go and, and tell us what, what are the arguments for and against learn to learning? Can you go into a little bit of detail on them, please? Yeah, yeah. So we, we started that chapter. Thank you for your compliment, by the way. I'm really, really pleased with how that chapter came out. It took some writing, I can tell you. Um, but so there's a quote that starts that chapter by um, by Richard Feynman, the, the well-known physicist, who said that if you if you really want to uh, to um, to propose a theory, that you need to say just as much what's what's bad about your theory as what's good about it. And so we wanted to we wanted to to give a very sort of fair hearing, if you like, to the critics of learning to learn. Um, and to the Tom Bennett's of this world. And so we, we wanted to understand, like, what are, what are the reasons that people would would um, oppose this? So I'll, I'll sort of talk about the arguments against first. And then I'll, and then and then we I mean, I, I could talk about this for a long time, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. So the first sort of argument that, that you might use against learning to learn is that knowledge is foundational. You know, and this is something that that people have started to really embrace in recent years, and rightly so, I think, because there was a lot of there was a lot of um, hot air that was talked and, and and practiced around skills, the skills agenda that really was big under the new Labour years. Um, it was even called the Department for Education and Skills at one point, which was a, a weird place for skills to appear. It was like right at the very top of the system. I don't quite know why it was called that. Um, but, you know, personalization and skills were all the rage and it was and there was lots of people who were sort of thinking that you could teach skills in the absence of knowledge, you know, that, that you don't have to know stuff. You can just sort of teach critical thinking skills or creativity as though they sort of exist in the abstract. And, you know, there was a, there was a, a framework that the government published called the, the PLTS at the time, the personal learning and thinking skills. And that was a good example of a framework of generic skills that were that was sort of existed in, in thin air that weren't really rooted in a, in a knowledge um, foundation. And so um, cognitive science has got a lot to say about this. And, you know, people were very influenced by, by Daniel Willingham's book um, quite early on in this period, weren't they? Uh, What's the point of school? And there's a quote, uh, I've actually got it here, where he says, um, trying to teach students skills such as analysis or synthesis in the absence of factual knowledge is impossible. Research from cognitive science has shown that the sorts of skills teachers want for their students, such as the ability to analyze and think critically, require extensive factual knowledge. And he says that the principle that the guys this chapter is factual knowledge must precede skill. And actually, 
you know, Willingham goes on, to, like, he doesn't just say knowledge is important and lots of people mischaracterize him as saying that. And then later on in that, in that same chapter, he goes on to say things like, the implication is that facts must be taught ideally in the context of skills. He also says we want students to think, not simply to memorize. He said we want to get them to develop background knowledge in parallel with practicing critical thinking skills. So he was talking about a balanced picture here, but the way that his work has been interpreted, I think has been quite selectively misread by people who are really pumping the knowledge rich agenda, especially by when, when that's done by politicians, both Gove and Gibb um, were endlessly quoting Daniel Willingham as if he was just saying, it's just about knowledge, guys. This is it, full stop, end of story. And, you know, that's not what Willingham said. So, um, uh, yeah, so so there were some good arguments for this. You know, this idea, that, you know, at the, at the time as well, with all this fluffy stuff that was happening, people were saying things like, we don't need to teach kids knowledge anymore because they've got a powerful computer in their pocket. And, we, you know, like, let's just let, let them use that. But actually, you know, people like E.D. Hirsch have done some, you know, he wrote something really, really quite insightful on this, which is that it takes it takes a lot of knowledge in order to be able to search something and to in order to look it up properly and to actually be able to tell if what you're if the definition that you're reading or the article that you're reading is truthful or not. You sort of, you know, you need that cultural literacy, if you like. Um, and so I think it's fair to say that, that having knowledge stored in your long-term memory is better than having it stored in, in your iPhone, right? So, um, and that, that's often sort of, you know, leveled at learning to learn, that it, like learning to learn is not teaching kids knowledge. And that, to be actually, that's not true. Not like learning to learn is a really knowledge rich thing, um, but we can come on to that. Um, so that's the first one. The second argument um, is that this idea that children are novices um, and that and that working memory is limited. So this is the cognitive load theory idea, the idea that um, that um, working memory is limited and because they're novices, they can get overwhelmed easily. And so discovery learning, you know, there's that famous paper by Kirshner, Sweller and Clark that says like discovery learning is uh, unguided discovery learning is a load of rubbish uh, and direct instruction is the way to go because cognitive uh, you know, load overload happens, you know, when you sort of like overwhelm kids by letting them, you know, free uh, to learn what they want and when they want and so on. And so what we really want is to have a knowledge rich curriculum that's taught by an expert uh, and we furnish them with the knowledge that they need in order to think critically and creatively and so on. So that's the, that's the second argument, which is essentially an argument for a knowledge rich curriculum, which you can see how that ties to the first argument. And the third one um, is this idea that generic skills can't be taught or, or that they don't transfer. There's, there's two parts to this really. So there was a famous paper by, by Tricot and Sweller, John Sweller, who was you know, the, the, the creator of, the, what do you call it? An inventor, a creator, the, the, the forefather, founder, uh, founder, <laughs> founder. of, of uh, cognitive load theory. And, um, and they, they sort of say that that you can't teach. So they, they talk about, they work on, they take from the work of, of David Geary, the evolutionary psychologist, who talks about the difference between biologically primary and secondary adaptations. I know you talked about this in the podcast with, with David Dido. David Dido, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so they argue that, that things like learning to speak and listen, learning to recognize faces, we do this automatically and you can't teach it. Uh, in any meaningful way, whereas whereas secondary knowledge is like reading and writing and everything that we do in schools. Um, and so, you know, therefore, you know, we do need to teach reading and writing and we don't need to teach, you know, kids how to recognize faces. 
and and they but they also lump in with that within the primary speaking and listening and that's where i just think well that's clearly not true is it like people don't all like we all recognize faces roughly to a similar degree unless we've got some sort of you know some people have that that thing where they can't recognize faces don't they but um unless you've got some cognitive impairment then most people can recognize faces to a pretty good standard right but like the quality and the quantity of people's spoken language varies enormously of course it does and of course we, that, that is hugely dependent on somebody's environment and the education that they have and the family environment and so on so it's i'm not really persuaded um that, that those things aren't teachable and learnable um and there's the second part of that argument is this idea that that skills are situated that the knowledge and skills are situated and that they don't transfer mm -hmm. easily to other to other contexts and that's true they don't transfer easily but that's not to say that they can't transfer at all. There's endless literature on transfer and transfer can exist, even so-called far transfer, where, where the two tasks aren't even sort of at the face value, aren't that different, but they, they might be similar in some sort of more deeper, more structural way. Far transfer can happen. It's just that you have to carefully manage that process. So to bring it back to what we were doing in the learning skills curriculum, we were really focused on transferring the knowledge and skills and the and the sort of character traits and the dispositions that they were developing through this learning skills curriculum uh, out of the learning skills classroom and also transferring that then into subject learning across the piece. Um, so they're the sort of, they're the three big arguments against learning to learn. Um, and if you like, um, I mean, I could sort of offer a quick rebuttal of each of those. Yes, please do. And then offer okay, and then offer three uh, the the three sort of positive arguments that we give mm -hmm. in that chapter. Um, so, the to 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 counter the first point that knowledge is foundational, uh, like we agree, <laughs> first of all, like it is foundational. The problem with that argument isn't that it's wrong; it's that it's only half right. I think, um, and and I think that that's illustrated well by that you know those quotes that I was talking about from Daniel Williams' book earlier. Um, you know, the, it, it goes it goes into endless detail in that in that quote. It even includes a quote by J. D. Everett, the philosopher from the from the nineteenth century, who said that there is great danger in the present day lest science teaching should degenerate into the accumulation of disconnected facts and unexplained formulae, which burden the memory without cultivating the understanding. You know, so um, Willingham is not is not as pro knowledge as people think. Um, the, and the second reason that uh, knowledge is important isn't really an argument against learning to learn is that it's that's sort of based on the assumption that learning to learn is somehow devoid of knowledge and it's just not like there's 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 lots of knowledge uh, in the in the way that we talk about you know the knowledge of like how to organize a project like project management is like a very knowledge heavy thing there's lots of content in there as well as processes the knowledge around what makes a good conversation you know that we talked a lot about about spoken language and how to engage in, in meaningful uh, what, what Neil Mercer my PhD supervisor describes as exploratory talk you know how can we explore together um, in, in such a way that actually those usual dis dysfunctional group dynamics don't happen and that we can have effective ground rules for group talk that's knowledge there's knowledge around presentational talk there's knowledge around what makes for debates we taught for the whole of year nine so as I said before this started as a year seven thing but then it expanded the curriculum the talk time expanded into year eight and nine the whole of year nine was teaching well, OCR at the time had a level two course in thinking and reasoning skills, TARS, it's an absolutely brilliant course, which is unfortunately being mm. discontinued now. Um, 
So there is no shortage of knowledge. Um, and also, you know, learning to learn demonstrably helped the, our students gain subject knowledge. And that, you know, we can see that in the literature on metacognition and self-regulation. Um, but also, you know, like we added to that in the learning skills curriculum, like th those kids went on to get the best set of results that that school had ever seen by some margin. And in particular, the gap closed from the bottom up. So it was especially beneficial for, for disadvantaged kids. Um, and so, you know, knowledge is important, absolutely. And if you really think that, then you need to get, in, get, get into learning to learn because, um, you know, this helps with that agenda. Um, the second argument that learning that, that, that children are novices, um, I think that that um, there's, there's there's an interesting conversation to be had here, um, and we're saying that that I mean the uh, one thing is that children are novices at at self-regulated learning as well, right? And so if we want to teach them how to how to you know organize their time and their resources and how to how to um, learn in a more proactive way rather than a reactive way like I have this conversation with my son all the time he sort of does what's it what's expected of him he shows up to school and he's bright kid and you know he does the homework that he's set but he's not in any way like on the front foot he's not sort of in an attacking mode and I think that that school sort of puts kids on the back foot because it's something that is very much it feels like it's very much done to children the kids you know it's hard for them to sort of to to get on that front foot and to be proactive and to go at it and, and if they're going to do that then they need to you know they need to learn how to do that um and so there's this uh, there's this question here about about balance you know nobody's saying that we should that we should do away with teachers um you know that, that um that learning to learn is something that we should do all the time um, but it is something that should run alongside a knowledge-rich, subject-rich uh, curriculum. Um, and it doesn't fly in the face of cognitive load theory either. Like the cognitive load theory, there's some really interesting work going on in cognitive load theory, A, about how it interacts with, with, with collaboration, with, with cooperative learning. So if you're in, a, if you're in a, a group that's working effectively, the hive mind, if you like, uh, the, where, where the group is in a sort of state of flow, where there's, where there's information flowing. That's another way in which we can overcome the limitations of working memory and do some really high level cognitive work. And also the way that cognitive load theory interacts with, uh, with self-regulated learning theory. So there's some really exciting avenues of practice to be had there. So I don't think that cognitive load theory and the idea that, that children are novices is a, you know, is a, a strong argument against learning to learn. Um, and then the third one, this idea that generic skills can't be taught and don't transfer. Um, I just, I, that's the one that I would take the most issue with. I already mentioned that, you know, I, I don't I really buy into this idea that, you know, we can't, we can't teach things like speaking and listening um, and, and other, other, you know, some uh, like projects, projects, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, problem solving skills. Um, and the, um, the, the, the point about transfer, like I said, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's an issue. It's something that we need to be mindful of, um, but it's not a dead end. Like transfer can happen. We just need to sort of step up to the plate rather than just sort of throwing our hands in the air and going, oh, it didn't transfer. Therefore, you know, this is all a waste of time. You're like, well, just make transfer happen then. Just like make it really explicit. And it's, it boils down to habit change, really. It's like you're changing. This is something that's, I think, really important that, um, 
that Guy Claxton talks about really nicely. He talks about the, the river of learning and how there's like there's three levels to it. So at the surface level, there's there's knowledge, right? And so there's like little packages of knowledge. So here's a bit of like translation in a Spanish lesson, or here's how to balance an equation, say. And then at the, and, and, and that current of the river flows quite fast. There's just like endlessly stuff going on. And then at the second level of the river, it's, it's the development of skills. So while you're balancing equations, you're also you know, strengthening your mathematical skills. You're also strengthening your, your you know, rational sort of thinking and reasoning skills, say, um, and your problem solving skills. And it might be that you're collaborating with your partner. So you're also developing your ability to collaborate and to, to learn in a, in a collaborative way. So that skills development is also happening. But then he talks about what's happening at the bottom level of the river, which is like dispositions. You know, this is like character development. Like, are you, are you for example, a proactive or a reactive learner? Um, are you curious or are you sort of apathetic and, and passive and so on? Um, and, and what Claxton's insight is, is that like whatever you're doing, things are happening at all three levels of that river anyway. And but but if you if you look really carefully, you can see that, that it is possible to teach in such a way that we can cultivate these character dispositions as well as knowledge and skills. And that's dispositions towards, you know, um, towards being pro-social. It could be about, you know, dispositions towards intellectual curiosity. Could be about about intellectual humility, you know. It could be about all all manner of things, um, and so I really like that as a metaphor because it just sort of allows me to see um, something that's often quite abstract. Mm -hmm. That we're, we're in the business of, of of building character, whether we acknowledge that or not. You know, if you're if you're you know if you're in a very sort of top down very sort of um, like all about 100% about direct instruction and you know the, the teacher is the fountain of all knowledge and that you know there's no group work in this school and you speak when you're spoken to sort of thing and um, that's developing certain character traits and those those character traits are things like that in order to be successful you need to be compliant like and, and what you think doesn't really matter here you know like this is this is like you know you're learning to be a part of this big system and we're going to tell you what's important to learn about and th those those practices build certain character traits um, and i'm not sure that they're the character traits that we want to be seeing in the world i'm not sure like i mean there's a balance to be struck this is another insight of guy claxton's he talks about like dispositions are often sort of set up in in opposition to one another but actually there's a balance to be struck you know people talk about resilience a lot you know and like well resilience is really is a really good thing to to have apart from when it's not you know sometimes it's really important to give up on something you know you don't want to just flog a dead horse and for the sake of it and this you know, if you've if you've been you know, this idea of the sunk cost fallacy, you know, if you've if you've invested a lot of time and energy into something, uh, actually sometimes you need to just take a step back and drop that thing and recognize that it's time to move elsewhere. And so, resilience is also you know balanced with sort of being circumspect and being sort of you know methodical and thoughtful and, and actually a little bit cautious at times. And so, um, yeah, that they would they would be. Um, some some assorted thoughts. Uh, I think that we probably do a better job in the book than I did just now of countering those arguments. But that's that's a, a brief summary. No, certainly, and I'd highly encourage people to 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 get get the book to to read that chapter because you really do go into detail on on those three areas of knowledge, foundational children are novices, and skills don't transfer. And in, in the in the rebuttal and the, in the prosecution and all that of it, it, it is really fantastic, fantastic writing. So we've heard that we, we've heard the kind of reasons 
for and against learning to learn it. And now, now let's discuss the, the learning skills curriculum. And you mentioned earlier um, about this idea of co- uh, complex inter- intervention. So why is it important for us to, to rethink learning to learn as a complex intervention? Yeah, um, well, so did, I mentioned before that, that, that um, this is something that's well, that's well understood, that it's a good idea to think about things in this way, uh, and that, that this is common in other fields. And it's not just in medicine, in social work, in, in, in psychotherapy, complex interventions are very common. But they're as rare as hen's teeth in education, and there are silver bullets everywhere. It's like the Wild West. Um, and um, you know, if you can see that, for example, in the in the the roster of, of randomized controlled trials that the that the EEF has been doing, really expensive uh, trials, and they're all essentially looking at one single variable uh, intervention in isolation. You know, one of them is about like daily singing. Is that the thing that makes a difference? Is it if we text parents more information more regularly? Is that the silver bullet? Is it if we you know do phonics? Is that the silver bullet? And it's, they're nearly always measured in terms of English and maths outcomes. And it's like, guys, come on! Like, what if it's a combination of those three things? What if it's a combination of you know phonics and texting parents and you know and 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 and, and doing five or six different things? And so, like I said before, because like teaching young people how to get better at learning stuff, I mean that that's a, that's a sort of it's an article of faith, really. That there's a there's this belief that we can that that we can teach kids how to get better at learning stuff, and it's based on the observation that some people are are better at at learning stuff than other people, and also that it's possible to 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 get better at that. And I think that there's abundant evidence that both of those things are true. Um, Lots of people, for example, like were told, like I was talking, I did a podcast recently with Kate, my co-author, and she was told that she was thick when she was at school and she left, she didn't go to school for a whole year because she just voted with her feet. She left with two GCSEs, not neither of them in English or maths, and she sort of bought into that as an idea. And it wasn't until much later that she realized that actually she's able to teach herself whatever she wants. And she's super like whip smart and a total force of nature that like she's out in the Dominican Republic at the moment, setting up a, a learning to learn school, um, which, you know, is, she's incredible. Um, but she, she that, that came to her late on. She didn't realize that mm. she could be good at learning stuff. She sort of bought this, this story that she'd been told. And, and if you want people to take that similar journey, then like I said before, you need to recognize that it's a, it's a, complex problem you know it's like it is you know part of it is about knowledge absolutely but part of it is about is about the skills that sit around knowledge about um you know um being able to reflect on knowledge and being able to organize lots of it in the second year in year eight of our learning skills curriculum it was largely based around organizational skills and we, we made them have a ring binder that they would organize their information in. And it was total chaos. There were so many kids who were like absolutely incapable of organizing a ring binder. And you would you know, you'd sit with them for 20 minutes sometimes and go through it and help them sort it out. And then within like five seconds, it's all just falling out or it's all just like putting upside down and back to front. And they just like got no idea about how to organize stuff. 
but that was like how they how they passed like that year was like you know you need to learn how to do this it's really important that you do later on when we interviewed them they were really pleased and the teachers across the school were really pleased that we had done that when they actually have to come to organize their resources later on they'd already learned how to do that so some of it's quite mundane stuff you know how to organize a ring binder um but like i said the, like if you strip it all down fear i really think is a massive thing like fear of failure is such a huge thing in schools. I was talking to a teacher yesterday and she's a, a nursery school teacher and she's wanting to do a research project on fear of failure in her in, among her pupils and, and why it is that they won't take risks and try new things. And they're in nursery. Like they've learned that, that's the learned behavior. And, and you need to unpack that and unpick it. And, it. and it goes deep, you know, and kids are afraid of so many things classically some things to do with spoken language which is why we focus so much on that they're, they're afraid to put their hand up in class and volunteer an answer to a question even when they know they know it and if you ask them later you're like why did you not stick your hand up i know that you know that and they're like yeah but there's like a tiny part of me there's like one percent there's this little niggling voice it's like what if you're wrong i don't want to look stupid no one's going to care anyway but it's, it's almost like it's overcorrection. and it, what kate's very insightful on this she talks about how this is sort of like a an overcorrection from an, like an evolutionary hangover that we've got this like this amygdala that's like that's constantly scanning the environment for threats to our safety and it can just totally overwhelm your nervous system and i think that everybody's felt that like i i still get it now i'm like a you know very seasoned public speaker now but in some circumstances you know when you're in a meeting and you go like oh go around the table and just introduce yourself and i've literally just got to say hello my name's james and what my job is like not a taxing task but i start to get butterflies when it's coming around to my turn I'm like oh my god what if i screw this up and so like that fear of that fear of being in a public forum is huge and lots of kids really shy away from that in state schools man like in, in private schools this is not a problem you know like the boris johnson's and and matt hancock's and and all these people who strut around on the world stage making a bit of a hash of things, as you may have noticed, um, are, are just unflappably confident, aren't they? Because like, the schools that they go to at Eton, they recently spent 18 million pounds on a new debating chamber. Mm -hmm. Absolutely mad. And it looks like the House of Commons. It's got like rows of wooden benches all facing each other. Uh, so they take that stuff really seriously. Um, and so if you're going, if we're going to help kids to overcome their fear of failure, then we need to em engage with this on quite a deep rooted level. And that's why we sort of, it's, there is no silver bullet that's going to work here. This, this has to be a complex solution to a complex problem. Um, and so, and it, and it goes deep. And, and, and one of the things that we would do differently at the end of, at the end of, in, in chapter five in the book, which is the, by far the biggest chapter where we go into immense detail really about the actual the, the the granular sort of detail of what this stuff looks like in the classroom at the end of that chapter there's a whole bunch of stuff that we would do differently again and i've been on a big journey recently in my understanding in terms of self-regulation because people often talk about metacognition and self-regulation in the same breath as though they're somehow joined at the hip and i think it was the eef that started that and people are often not really very clear about what the difference is but i do think that it's really important that we know what the difference is and so I define metacognition as, as um, monitoring and, and controlling your thought processes. 
And that's really important. So monitoring and control, paying attention, first of all, like asking kids that, like, you know, what was going on for you last week? What was good? What was bad? What frustrations did you have? What would you do differently if you did it again? And then the control bit is like looking ahead to the upcoming week, you know, like what might you, what's coming up? What, what are you going to try? You know, and so on. Um, Self-regulation, we define as monitoring and controlling your feelings and behaviors. And that could be physical feelings, like because you know, like when somebody is afraid of something, they often, like I was talking about butterflies just now, they often feel it in their chest or their hands are tight, say, and so it could be physical feelings. Your, your jaws all clenched because you're sort of angry or you're frustrated or you're mad at yourself or something. And often, you know, this is this is the the big understanding that I've come to is that actually self-regulation really starts there with 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 your body. You know, bringing people into their body and when they're overwhelmed and when they're freaked out bring them into their body you know stretch you know do something physical push your feet into the floor to sort of ground yourself sort of thing um and 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 it's also about monitoring and controlling your behaviors so self-regulation is much more it's like the mirror the mirror image of metacognition if you like metacognition is monitoring controlling your internal thought processes and self-regulation is monitoring and controlling how you interact with the external environment physically, emotionally, and behaviorally. And then self-regulated learning. These two things are often, like people often use, like, use self-regulation and self-regulated learning interchangeably. But again, there's a really important distinction to be made here. And the way that we def define that is that self-regulated learning is the application of metacognition and self-regulation to learning. Um, and I think that that's a really important point to make because when teachers understand this theory, and I, I, this is basically a lot of what I do is talking about these ideas. When, when teachers understand the theory, then they can, then they can like, interpret that into practices from first principles, rather than just taking some strategies off the, off the shelf and they go, oh, metacognition, it's about mind mapping and helping them organize their thoughts before they do an essay, say, oh, that didn't really work for our kids, so we'll leave that alone. But if you understand that this is about monitoring and controlling, and it's through paying attention, it's like it's the monitoring that leads to the control, it's through paying attention and noticing and becoming aware of what's going on, that, that they'd start to learn where the levers are and they start to notice that like, oh, hang on a minute, I'm getting tense here, I'm swearing a lot, or my, my hands are tense, or my, my legs gone all jittery. I, I know that this is an early warning sign and so I'm gonna take a deep breath and I'm gonna sit back and I'm gonna do some like, self-talk or whatever it is and I'm gonna sort of start to change change this, this path that I'm going down. So it, it really is quite an emancipatory mechanism and I, I really, buy into that vision that John Flavel had all those years ago, that metacognition, this is, you know, there's this ins incredibly inspirational head teacher that I work with in London. She talks about metacognition. She's like, this is the, this is the emancipatory mechanism. If you're a disadvantaged child, this is how you break out of a system that replicates and reproduces social inequality. You become reflective and you see what's happening. You see your position within this wider system and you take action to resolve it. And likewise for teachers, um, so I, I think that this stuff is, is very important and lots of the work that I do now, just as a final point on this, is, um, is applying exactly those same three principles to, to teachers professional development um, through things like practitioner inquiry. That's learning to learn for teachers, you know, that's like teachers metacognition, they're reflecting on their own thoughts about learning and teaching and reflecting on their own practice self-regulation they're taking control of their own professional development setting goals and working towards them and taking responsibility for the process and for the outcomes and oracy again like it's a like it's hugely about about spoken language and 
and collaboration between people. So, um, yeah, that's so that I, I really think that we that we stand to gain a huge amount in education if we can start to embrace this idea of the complex intervention. Certainly, and certainly, it was such so fascinating hearing you, your thoughts go there, and, and thank you very much for, for sharing that. And um, well, now I want to go into the, the nitty gritty of, of the learning skills curriculum at CU, and then after that, I want to talk about the evidence that you gathered across your, your eight year study. Yeah. So could you could you tell us what what um, was involved daily, weekly, and monthly for the CU students, and, and and can you share a little bit about your theory of action, please? Yes, yes, yes. So the, the theory of action is, you can think of it sort of as a bit like a golden thread. In my PhD, I talked about it, about the golden thread. So it's like, what is learning? What is learning to learn? What is this learning skills curriculum? And how is this going to help the kids become more self-regulated learners? And so just to sort of to walk you through that, like this, this whole thing, like I said before, is based on an observation that some people are better at learning than others and that anyone can get better at learning. And then so if we decide to define what is learning, you know, I know we mentioned it earlier before we start recording that the, the Ofsted published a thing this week where they defined education as basically just memorizing stuff that you've been taught, which is just this, this very sort of bleak um, uh, reductive vision of what education is. And, and it, similarly, you know, like last year they published their, their definition of learning, which they basically took from that paper by Kirshner, Sweller and Clark, which is that learning is a change in the long-term memory. And you're like, oh guys, come on, man. Like this is, that's a very, very reductive way of looking at things. And actually that's not even what cognitive scientists think in, in the round, you know, some do, but, but most don't. So we define learning in, in quite a broad way. We talk about it as the acquisition and retention of knowledge, understanding, skills, habits, beliefs, values, attitudes, motivations. So we, we're recognizing that this is about simultaneously all three levels of the river, if you like, knowledge, skills, and dispositions. And it's and it's also there's like there's learning about self in there as well. There's like knowledge of self and and this is this is essentially rooted in a vision of education as a process of of self-actualization, you know, of like becoming more fully yourself, finding your feet, finding your voice, growing into yourself and becoming, you know, the fullest version of yourself that you can be, sort of thing. Um, so that's learning. Learning to learn is a field of educational research and practice that aims to help kids get better at learning stuff. Um, the learning skills curriculum. So I talked about those three, those three key concepts, um, metacognition, self-regulation and oracity. There were also three key sort of structural elements within the learning skills curriculum. Um, so number one, it was a taught course for all students in the whole year group in mixed ability groups. That's really important that it's mixed ability. Um, the second one is that there are embedded elements. So there are aspects of this that are, that are happening across the, across the piece. Um, and the third one is that there are a whole bunch of whole school practices designed to facilitate transfer, like I said earlier, transfer out of learning skills and transfer into subject learning across the curriculum. Um, and the idea is that if we can if we can make this work, if we can if we can help kids through the taught course to get better at self-regulated learning, and if we can have aspects you know of teaching and learning practices that are happening across the school, so that they can practice these within the context of their other subjects, um, and if we can actively promote the transfer out and transfer into subject learning of those those you know all of that stuff that was came under the learning umbrella those habits skills dispositions knowledge understanding 
then uh, they'll become more effective self-regulated learners within those subjects and therefore they should be able to to achieve better results um which was the you know the the primary outcome of, of my phd was like did you know did these kids get better at learning stuff in a way that's measurable in terms of subject learning across the piece um and so it, that, that, that was the sort of the structural elements and then within within the learning skills curriculum itself um a lot of the time was given over the, the first thing that went in was 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 p4c was philosophy for children because i've done that i've studied that and practiced it for my masters and it's just i don't know if you've had any any experience with this darren it's an absolutely incredible incredible way of going about teaching and learning it's very very different to like teaching from the front of a room and as a subject teacher as a science science teacher I took a really long time to to get to get the hang of uh, of, of how to do this. Essentially, you sort of usually sit in a circle uh, with no tables or desks in between, um, and you have a, a very long, extended conversation. So that you, you have some sort of a stimulus. The kids come up with questions to ask about that big, open philosophical question. So you do a little bit of work at the start around how to how to write, how to generate, you know, good questions that lend themselves to extended discussion. And then you discuss it at length and it's it's absolutely fascinating and it's not about the um imparting subject knowledge it's about developing their spoken language skills and their speaking and reasoning skills and those two things are very very tightly uh, inter mm -hmm. intertwined um so that was the first thing to go in so one lesson a week was was p4c and there's really good evidence that p4c leads to leads to all kinds of outcomes in like cognitive attainment tests and and subject learning and social and emotional development and so on. So um, the, the biggest chunk of it was, was project-based learning. So we would have one big project each half term. And I know that lots of people are quite anti-project-based learning. And I think that the reason that project-based learning is like, it gets a bad press is because it's often done like within the context of subjects, right? So it's like, if we're trying to teach maths, is it more effective to teach maths through explicit instruction or you know by doing some sort of a project where the kids will learn the skills along the way working towards some bigger goal and when you compare those two lo and behold like explicit instruction outperforms project-based learning and i think that that's true you know there, recently there was an eef trial where they looked at project-based learning and it was they were, they were measuring you know is this improving literacy outcomes and you're like well no like if you want to improve literacy outcomes teach the kids literacy skills and get them to practice them Put the project-based learning down like it's not appropriate here but we're in the in the in the learning skills curriculum our aim is to get the kids to become self-regulated learners and there's like i don't see how you can do that unless you take a step back like like the very the name gives it away right self-regulated this is not an externally regulated situation you have to take a step back and so we would set them a, a, a challenging project that would last for six weeks um and then we would take a massive step back and some of them would get on with it and start cracking on straight away and others would really flounder and struggle and and we would we had quite a lot of internal sort of tensions within ourselves and within the team as teachers we were like how much flounder is good and like, like we don't you don't want them to flounder for six weeks right and have absolutely nothing yeah. to show for it um, but also you don't want to throw them a life a, a lifeboat at the first sign of trouble because you're just making them dependent on you as an externally regulated source of you know of, of support um so project-based learning was was huge and we learned a lot you know we did some pretty duff projects and some absolutely brilliant projects um so that was three lessons a week of those five 
And then the fifth lesson, we sort of alternated it. So one week it would be an oracy lesson, like paired talk. We had, there was this great, um, this great book called Thinking Through Philosophy uh, with all these, all these activities that lend themselves to extended discussions. So we would work through that. And then every other week we would have a reflection lesson. So they would write in uh, extended writing in learning journals. We would start that lesson with a with mindfulness meditation um, we would use guided visualizations at first and then we got into a little bit of mindfulness of breathing to to open up a sort of a reflective frame of thinking in, in what's often a very hectic school day you know in a busy secondary school and the kids came to really value that and there's lots of fascinating research that's being done and has been done in the field of, of meditation um, as a way to and again you know it's, it's monitoring and control like that's really what meditation is it's just like paying attention noticing stuff and when you notice stuff you, you become more more alert more self-aware and more able to you know to um to act or to not act in ways that you would prefer um and so yeah and then they would yeah, the learning journal so they would have sort of a, an extended period of of silent writing uh, usually in response to some prompt questions and it would sometimes it would focus on a particular subject so it'd be like right we're going to write about french today How's it going in French? What's really good? What does a good French lesson feel like? What happens when it's good? What happens when you, you come out of a French lesson and it's rubbish and you just think, oh, I didn't really learn anything there. What aspects of French are you good at? You know, is it listening? Is it speaking? Whatever. Um, what do you struggle with? What might you do differently? And, and how is that? And, and we often, you know, with that transfer stuff, we would often ask questions like, what kinds of things are we doing in learning skills at the moment? And it might be that they're making a Christmas market stall. And we would ask a question like, how could this help you in French? And we wouldn't have a, a clue as to how to answer that question. But the kids were really good at answering those questions and making those very explicit mm -hmm. links. And they're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm learning how to how to bite my tongue, for example. And I'm learning how to sit back and just sort of let somebody else like play a role. Uh, and, and that's a bit like that in French, because I often find that I do all the talking and I don't let other people talk. And I need to take a step back and, you know, let them let them learn and I learn I learn from their journeys as well from my own sense so the kids are very good at making these links um so that was that's a sort of brief summary of what was actually happening in those lessons and just I, I suppose I briefly mentioned what was happening across the piece in terms of what like stuff that, that was happening in terms of subject learning that's a that's a really hard thing to to get you know, consistency on mm -hmm. but there's a couple of bits that I would point to one was a shared language of learning mm -hmm which took us a few times to get right. The first couple of, of attempts were, you know, not very successful, but the third one was much better when we, when we did it in collaboration with students and with teachers. And that's just about having a, like, you know, so when we're talking about, you know, cause if you've ever done that thing where you, where you track a kid from one, from like for a day, mm -hmm. you follow them and it's overwhelming, isn't it? It's like really mad. And like they're, they're, you know, they're throwing a javelin out on the field period one, period two, they're analyzing a poem by some, you know, like Caroline Duffy or something. Period three, they're doing like some like experiment in science. Period four, they're looking at some historical, you know, sources. And it's like, that's a lot of stuff to do in a day. And those, those, those subjects look at face value very different to each other. But actually, you know, lots of the stuff that's happening under the surface, it's like the, the same processes of learning, like the teacher is modeling stuff. You know, there's knowledge in there. There's deliberate practice. You get feedback. You respond to that feedback. And so if we can, if we could come up with a consistent set of, of language to, that we could use to describe what was happening in lessons, then the kids would experience a much more joined up diet of learning across the piece. Um, so that, that was one element. And then the other big one was, was talk rules. So like um, 
lots of the work that, that I've done is around teaching kids like sometimes it's referred to as, as ground rules for group talk or uh, voice 21 they talk about discussion guidelines but it's essentially like you know if we're going to have a paired or a small group discussion here's here are the ground rules this is what good group talk looks like and it's often things like make sure everybody gets the chance to contribute give reasons for your thinking share all information even if it's inconvenient information so like you know if, if the most popular kid in the group says oh i think it's six everyone just puts six down and we'll move on and then you go well actually no like let's let's like, i think it's four and so can we just go over this like what why do you think it's six and why do i think it's four so you so you sort of you know um you you encourage and enable those much more sort of robust conversations to take place get the groups to work towards agreement and so on and so to as to the uh, to the extent that we were able to do it, which is no mean feat, uh, we really um, had an emphasis on on that. So that again, so that kids are you know thinking, okay, well I'm in a paired conversation, I know how to nail a paired conversation because this is what we do in learning skills. Um, so that was sort of the bit that was happening across the piece. Certainly, and you mentioned earlier on. So thank you for that for that explanation. I think listeners will really really value that kind of insight into into what was happening on on each of your periods and so on. Um, you mentioned that you followed uh, four cohorts for over eight years, and then could you tell me what the what the evidence is for your learning skills curriculum that you, that you outline in the book? Yeah, um, so the like I said, the primary outcome measure was to what extent are they are they you know performing uh, in their subject learning across the piece. And, and we saw by the end of year nine, the, the first journal article that we published, it was like the interim, there's two big analyses, one at the end of year nine, where they've been doing this thing for three years. Um, and that was based on teacher assessments, which, you know, as you know, aren't considered to be as robust as, as you know, standardized assessments. So, but, but by the end of year nine, it, the, it, the data was looking really healthy. So the, like the control group was the previous year group at the same school who were very similar at entry to the school. They obviously were at the same school. They had the same teachers. You know, they had the same behavior policy and so on. So it was a pr made for a pretty, you know, pretty good comparison. Uh, but it wasn't randomized. It wasn't a randomized controlled study because we, you know, this was a real world thing. It wasn't an experiment. Um, and so by the end of year nine, yeah, they were they were significantly outperforming the the control group, and that's remarkable if you think about it because they had taught lessons in year seven, eight, and nine. So, and so over those three years, the, that first cohort had over 400 lessons of, of, of learning to learn. And therefore the control group, the previous year group had 400 more lessons of subject-based learning over the, of, throughout key stage three, right? And so you would expect that in a, in a comparison of subject-based learning after three years, that the, the, the control group would have had an advantage, but the learning to learners kick their asses <laughs> to use the colloquial term uh, they, they significantly outperformed them um, and in particular the gap closed and by the end of year nine the gap had closed almost from the bottom up you know like, like almost completely um, so at the end of year nine the, the, the people premium gap the disadvantage gap was about 25 percent across if you combine all subjects together um, and in the learning to learn group it was just two percent which was absolutely incredible um, and then we found exactly the same pattern of results uh, at GCSE, significant, they, they got the best set of results at that school I'd ever seen. Um, and again, the disadvantage gap closed hugely. I think it was over, by over 65% from, from, one, from one cohort to the next, the gap closed by, um, which was hugely encouraging, you know. I mean, I'd like to see it close completely, but, you know, I think six, like 65% from one cohort to the next is, is not bad. Um, 
And then we also did lots of qualitative stuff because because, you know, like you could argue, oh, well, you know, schools results go up and down all the time. Maybe the maybe the school was just on an upward trend and, you know, this might not be been due to the learning skills. And so we did lots of qualitative measures where we, we interviewed kids, we interviewed teachers, we looked in the in what kids were writing in those in those learning journals. Uh, they were the main ones. Um, and consistently, we found that, you know, that the kids were able to say, yes, I think that learning skills helped me to learn more effectively in these other subjects. And here's how. And they were able to point to particular mechanisms of how. And by far, the most common one was confidence. They said that through the through the explicit requirement that they would develop their speaking and learning skills and learn how to speak and have a high quality conversation with anybody that they find themselves in a group with, that they found confidence and through public speaking as well they, they sort of like you could see them almost like walking an inch taller when, when you teach a kid how to how to deliver a knockout speech at the front of a room it changes them as people like this is not just like teaching them how to balance an equation this changes them as people it changes that how they think about themselves and, and and how they think about the things that they could potentially go on to do in the future and that confidence spills over into their friendship groups they become more confident. They, they talked about how they were happier in their peers. They were more confident at home dealing with family members and so on. Um, and the teachers said the same stuff that, that you know, that um, the kids were, were very clearly, you know, the, we did an interview with the PE teacher who was talking about how the difference between key stage four and key stage three kids was like night and day. And that at key stage four, you know, they, she was having to give them sentence starters, like just properly spoon feed them, like top set kids properly having to spoon feed them, you know, with their coursework. And at key stage three, the kids who'd been through this learning skills curriculum, she's like, they're just running the lessons for themselves. They're all willing to, to take critical feedback. They're all willing to, she said that like often it's only some kids who take on a leadership role, those ones who are sort of naturally confident, but she's like, they're all taking on leadership roles. They organize their resources. She said, I didn't even, it's like, I didn't even need to be there. They were just learning so effectively as a unit. Um, and so I think that we could argue the case for causality that actually, you know, if the results go up and the teachers say that, you know, that it was learning skills that did it and they think that they can point to how and the and the kids say the same. And, and I think that in particular, it was, it was the, that closing of the gap. You know, you could you could argue and say, well, you know, results go up from one year to the next and they do. But the gap doesn't close. The gap is stubborn as anything. Like it's really stubborn. To, and, and so you've got to ask, you know, what, what was the main difference between these two cohorts of kids? Obviously, the biggest difference is that one, one cohort had 400 lessons that were designed to help them become more self-regulated, confident, effective, proactive learners. You know, that's surely the most, the most uh, reasonable explanation as to why they went on to do so much better. But, you know, it's just a final point. We're very circumspect on this fact that and I think that we, we made a real, real big impact um, at the, the school where we did this study, but it was one school. And like I said before, we were this unusually committed group of enthusiastic teachers who really wanted to make this work. The fact that I was studying it for my PhD, you know, probably made me invested in it over and above what, what would normally be the case. And so, you know, to what extent is this generalizable to other settings is the question that we're currently, mm -hmm. you know, working very eagerly on. And I, I'm convinced that not only can we replicate these findings, but that we can improve on them, partly because I've, I've become much more aware of, we mentioned earlier, implementation science, this new field of study that's all about how to implement change in an effective way so that it's sustained over time. 
we would we would do things so much better now if we had if we had the last 10 years again and that's the stuff that you know the first thing that when i'm talking when i'm talking uh, with schools about learning to learn the first conversation that we have is implementation rather than getting straight into you know metacognition it's like we need to talk about how change is going to happen and are you ready for change as an organization um and if you are then let's let's talk <laughs> certainly no thank you thank you for that um, i've got I'm going to ask one more question uh, before we move on to the final quick fire questions. And that's the questions I ask every guest and just to close it off. And, and, and you, you wrote in, in the book that the CVU study advances the, the, the learning to learn field in, in two key ways. Can you, can you share what they are? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I can. Um, so, I mean, the, the first one is essentially <laughs> that it actually worked, <laughs> you know, because because they're like, they're, I mean, going back to that Marmite comment earlier, you know, there, there have been a number of large scale, there, were, there are four that we point to in the book, number of large scale attempts. That's what's really interesting, this dichotomy in the learning to learn literature that these meta-analyses of studies are often meta-analyses of smaller, small-scale studies in metacognition and self-regulation that do show a strong impact. But when these things have been scaled up into whole school approaches to teaching and learning, and there's been, there was four that we point to in the book, there was a big project called Learning to Learn in Schools, there's Learning How to Learn, there was Building Learning Power, and there was, um, there was Opening Minds. And there's not particularly strong evidence that, that any of those programs led to these sort of significant gains in, in subject learning that we would want to see if, we, if children are actually getting better at learning, then why aren't their scores going up sort of thing. So um, there have been you know, examples of, and I can understand why people are skeptical of learning to learn um, who were around at that time. Um, so our thing worked <laughs> is the first one. So I think that it shows promise in achieving what previous learning to learn initiatives have failed to achieve, which is to bring about demonstrable improvements in learning outcomes, and especially among kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, which is you know, the question that's on everybody's lips, like how can we close the gap and how can we close it in an equitable way, right? So, cause this wasn't like, often the gap is, is the way that people close the gap is that, you know, kids who are people premium, kids who are eligible for free school meals have all kinds of crazy interventions happening like all throughout year 11 to sort of to get to, to, to make the school's figures look better. Um, and then that's not a, not a healthy way or a good way to close the gap, I don't think. And so this is like all the kids were in it together. It was a mixed ability approach, a mixed prior attainment approach. Mm -hmm. And they learned so much from one another, um, more, much more so than they learned from us. This was a, a big sort of skills sharing and swapping thing. And the, the fact that we, that we made them mix up like, within, within those mixed, mixed prior attainment groups, we, we required them. So when we were doing those oracy lessons, we required them to, uh, first of all, they could sit in a pair of their choosing. And then in the next half term, there was a three, the next half term, it was a four. And then in the second half of the year, we would repeat that cycle, but this time the teacher chose. So by the end of the year, you will, will be able to have a really high level exploratory conversation with anybody that you find yourself in a group with. And the kids really appreciated being pushed out of the apparent safety of their friendship groups to have those conversations. And so they made connections with each other like crazy. And I think that that's why it worked to a significant degree. And the second thing is that we, we're able to provide an explanation as to how learning skills drives improved attainment across the curriculum. So uh, like so we've, got, we've got the input variable and the output variable, you know, the inputs, this learning skills curriculum and the output is the GCSE results, but like what's actually happening in, in, in theory and in practice. 
And actually, the second one is a bit of a cheat because because that explanation comes in six parts. <laughs> uh, can I just quickly whiz through those? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it's essentially a summary. I won't go into great detail. It's essentially a summary of the things that we've talked about. Number one, this idea of a complex intervention, which is sort of based on the idea of marginal gains theory, this idea that you do lots of things that are good ideas and that the incremental marginal gains that arise from each of those ideas stack up and interact and you get this bigger effect size overall. Um, the second one is uh, this explicit focus on metacognition, helping kids monitor and control their thought processes through things like reflective writing, transfer plenaries, um, providing them with the, with the language, that, that shared language of learning, the language with which to describe themselves as learners. Um, the third one is self-regulation, learning to control their feelings and their behaviours. And that was through things like the project-based learning and that, that, you know, that, that process where we got the kids to, to mix up uh, and learn with one another in any group size. Um, also through things like reflective writing and reflecting on, on, on how they control their behaviours beyond the school gates. So we did this fascinating uh, project called the, the, the Seven Days Challenge where they um, they have to not say a bad word about another human being for seven days and seven nights. And they found it so difficult. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely fascinating. These little year sevens who wouldn't say boo to a goose could not get through a day without calling their little brother or sister a, a, a name. Absolutely incredible. And they learned so much in that week about strategies for how to, how to manage their, their behaviors and their emotions. So self-regulation. The fourth point is oracy. Like the, it's so important. This like I can't think of of another way that we could. You know, people are talking about leveling up society. We mentioned earlier about how you know kids in state schools are not taught how to develop their spoken language skills to the same extent that they mm -hmm. are in private schools. I think that if we get behind that agenda, everybody now today gets behind that agenda and becomes as serious about developing spoken language skills as Eton is. I think that we could transform society in the space of a generation because people, kids find their voice. Like I said before, it changes them as people. Mm -hmm. This is not just a skill. It's not like, oh, how to do well in an interview, say, although that's really important. It changes them as people. It changes how they think of themselves. It, it's fundamental to the idea of de democracy, you know, that, that everybody's able to have a voice physically and metaphorically express that voice. So that's a huge one. Number five um, is the fact that these three, these three ideas, metacognition, self-regulation and oracy, combine together to help the kids become self-regulated learners, which is sort of quite well defined in the, in the literature as kids who sort of who set their own goals, who work towards those goals strategically, they know their strengths and weaknesses, they are able to, to, you know, to bootstrap their own way, they're, they're able to, to find out to, 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 you know, how to know what to do when they don't know what to do, that sort of thing, you know, so that they're not just floundering. Guy Claxton calls it learning how to flounder intelligently, uh, which I really like. Um, and then the final one was, was the number six is transfer. Um, and I think that taking together those six features of the learning skills curriculum provide a really compelling narrative as to how this this curriculum helps kids to become those more confident articulate effective self-regulated learners um so yeah that's this that's the second part i think we've got a good explanation certainly brilliant well, thank you thank you so much um i'll bring us to the end of, of that interview section james and it's, it's been truly fascinating and i'm sure the listeners will, will will really benefit from that and especially the highlights of the evidence and closing that gap to 
by 65%. It's just incredible. And it blew me away when I, when I read that. So on that note, um, before we move into my quick fire round, my, my last three questions of the, of, of the podcast, can you share where listeners can, can buy the book? And can you share where listeners can connect with you and, and, and learn more and, and, and engage with you and, and perhaps chat, chat to you more about how they can embed a learning skills curriculum in their school? Yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah. there's loads of ways you can get hold of me. Probably the easiest is um, via my website. So we've got a website, rethinking-ed.org. Uh, there's a contact thing on there. Um, there's also, I've just recently set up a community forum. So like yourself, I've got a, a podcast. There's a Rethinking Education podcast. And around that, there's a, there's a community forum now um, where there's a, there's, a free, there's a free video course for parents and carers. Um, called Learning to Learn at Home. Um, it's a 10-part video course. And, and there's also a community. So um, if you go to rethinking-education.mn, which is short for Mighty Network, .co. So rethinking-education.mn.co. Um, or on Twitter, I'm Rethinking James on Twitter. That'll probably do. Um, you, you'd Google me. I, I've got, a, you know, I, I come up if you Google me. So I do that. Certainly. So if, if you get in that, please do Google them. So we're on the quick fire round, James. These are, these are where I'm going to ask some, some pretty broad questions, but I want your really, really short, really short responses to, to what you truly believe. Um, so my first one there is what, what makes great teaching for you? I think it's just to go back to that river metaphor, it is teaching that explicitly addresses all levels of that river knowledge, skills, and dispositions, and does so explicitly. Right, thank you for, that's a wonderful thread that's went all the way through the, the conversation. Second question is, what thing, what one thing would you prioritise to bring about great teaching in every classroom? Oracy, it's got to be oracy. Um, again, because I think that it's so sort of underdeveloped and under underrepresented, and especially talk rules. Like when people talk about oracy, they often think about debating straight away. Oracy as a performance, uh, presentational talk or debating, and those two things are really good. But they also have a sort of dark side. Like like debating is sort of almost based on this idea that the conversation is a is a competition that can be won or lost. And presentational talk, you know, when you learn how to how to speak like a politician, you know, we, we, that, that's not necessarily a good thing. But but talk rules um, is really like the bread and butter stuff. And if you go, if there's a website called Thinking Together, again, if you Google that, it's part of the University of Cambridge site. There's some really good resources on there about how to set up talk rules. It's the most transformational thing that I ever did as a teacher. Right. Thank you very much. And brings us to our final question. Um, if you could change just just one thing in education, what would that be? I think that we need to to reach a point of synthesis. You know, you know that sort of idea, like like a hypothesis, mm -hmm. antithesis, and then a synthesis. We had the hypothesis, which is like skills based education is really important. There was, you know, that we talked about earlier. Um, and now we've sort of swung hard in the opposite direction. And it's like knowledge is really important. And you're like, right, that's great. Both of those things are true. And so can we now like work towards a synthesis? Can we work towards a vision of education that actually is, you know, doing that thing that addresses all three levels of the river at the, at the same time? And I, I think that a learning skills curriculum does that. 
Like this, this is not somehow anti-knowledge. It's not an anti-knowledge rich curriculum thing. This absolutely complements a knowledge rich curriculum. It wraps around it and it interacts it and strengthens it demonstrably. Um, and so like I was chatting with Jay McTie recently, American, American guy, really interesting guy. And, and he was, he talked about it as like a meta curriculum. Mm. It's like teaching kids how to, how to learn as well as what to learn. And it seems like it's just a no brainer, man. Like surely we should be teaching kids how to learn. Like why is, why are we even having this conversation? Like, it, I mean, here we are. So uh, I'm, I mean, I welcome the conversation and I hope that we can get somewhere, but it just feels like I, I, I can envisage a future where there is a learning skills curriculum, a version of it in every school on the planet. Cause why, why would you not do that? Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it seems like it's so obvious to me. Certainly. And, and what, what, what a way to finish. So it just leads me to, to thank you so, so much, James, for, for giving up your time this evening and, um, be, excuse me, and, and giving such a wonderful contribution to the Becoming Educated podcast. And I really do encourage people to, to go and buy the book and, and, and really consider um, putting our learning skills curriculum in, into their school because the evidence that you've presented, although it's one school, it really is um, overwhelming. And the, the, a lot of what you said today will hopefully tip that scale forward. So thank you so much. Thank you massively for, for having me on. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with me and to read the book and to say all the lovely things that you said about it. Really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educate. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.